a very warm welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast with your host, Paul Lowe. Paul offers wisdom, insights and tips for living a healthy, meaningful, purposeful life. On the back of overcoming extreme adversity, Paul has a proven track record of achieving life-enhancing results. He offers empowering advice and guidance to help people develop a mindset for success so that they can live with more happiness and prosperity. Through his Mastering the Game of Life podcast and books, Paul also helps people to get their own inspirational messages and powerful stories out into the world, as well as being involved in supporting many charitable organisations in their development, fundraising and projects. Hello listeners and a very, very warm welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by one of our, our co-authors in the Mastering the Game of Life book, a gentleman by the name of Richard Gerber. Richard, a very warm welcome to you, sir. Hi, Paul. It's great to be with you. So one of the things that we, uh, we mused about, Richard, off air was the title. What are we are going to talk about you know, to benefit our listeners? And uh, we think, listeners, we've come up with a great title for you. But obviously, you'd be the judge of that when you listen to what... Uh, particularly Richard's got to say, and the title is this, If I Ruled the World, A Changemaker's Perspective. So, Richard, I think that's very appropriate timing to hand over to you and any thoughts. Let's get this show on the road. <laughs> well, first of all, doesn't, doesn't the title remind people of a certain generation of Emperor, Emperor Ming from Flash Gordon or something <laughs> like that? If I ruled the world. Um, I, <laughs> I think what's really interesting about the title and actually about our perspective on this is, you know, the, the, the times we're living through right now have in so many ways um, changed all of our perspectives about the world we live in and more importantly how we're prepared to live in that world you know undoubtedly we are now seeing um, people finding it really hard to cope not just with the rate of change and uncertainty that we're living through because of the covid crisis but also because there seems to be a lack of, there's an absence of hope because there doesn't seem to be a fixed endpoint. And all three of those things really are issues we need to, to think about long and deep into the future, hopefully long after COVID has gone. You know, because in a way, we were prepared to, we were prepared, educated, raised to live in worlds of certainty, uh, worlds that moved slowly, um, where there were profound certainties at the end of, of every pathway, where we were uh, rewarded for seeking out those certainties and for mastering doing the same thing in the same way, time after time. Uh, and also, you know, we, we were rewarded by being told that if you get your head down and do the same thing as productively as you possibly can, as efficiently as you possibly can, then there will be fixed points in your year, in your life, which you can look forward to. You can afford a holiday or holidays. You can afford um, a nice car. You can afford to contribute to a pension. You're going to get a regular salary. Um, you know, all of these things are are things that that we've been condition, conditioned to think about and and believe in. 
And I think if I, if I was to rule the world, the first thing I'd be considering was how we change the way we educate, raise and manage people to not just be able to cope with change and uncertainty, but find ways to thrive within it. Mm, very, yeah, very good. Yeah. I want to dig down, Richard, on one word, and, and I know listeners from the previous conversations that, that Richard and I have had around, you know, because we do have private conversations. <laughs> um, the word hope, Richard, the mm. word hope, and I've shared mm. on more than one occasion and sort of no apologies for, for bringing it back into focus again, this word hope, a simple four-letter word. And if I could be allowed to just repeat, stroke share yet again from a personal perspective, that up until the beginning of this year, for me, the word hope, I conceived was one of those nice words. It was a flimsy word. What does hope mean? You know, it is like the word nice. It's kind of, I don't know, for me, it sat on the fence. It was bland. It was got no punch. It had got no power. It was just, you know, it's nice when we go around to aunties on a Sunday for tea, that kind of thing. Boy, have I personally changed my whole perception around that word hope. And I know, Richard, from the conversations I've had with countless people, it's got a whole new meaning. So when you said the, the absence of hope and no end point, you know, that for me is the real crux of this whole uncertainty. And let's introduce that four-letter dirty F word, shall we? Listeners, you know what's coming here. Fear. Mm. Fear. Mm. Because we're gripped. You know, this pandemic has created this whole... Is it down to the pandemic only, though, Richard? I mean, I ask you the question. Well, I think what the, the pandemic has done has provided us with, it's an accelerant, it's a, it's a catalyst. It's possibly the greatest accelerant to issues we were already dealing with that we've ever seen. You know, in the last, what, in the last 13, 14 years, we've seen two global events that have acted as profound accelerants to amplify the rate at which the world is changing shape and form. The first of those, I would argue, was the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, that rocked so many of us in our way of lives and so many people who were in entirely innocent in what they were then having to deal with. And I think this has kind of taken that to a whole, to, you know, I'll, I'll see you your global financial crisis and raise you a pandemic. Um, and we're now, we're now in a situation where it has accelerated and amplified what was already happening. You know, we know the world was turning faster. We know the world was increasingly uncertain and changing at a ferocious rate. Um, all of these things we knew already and we weren't prepared to to live with them. It meant that for so many of us, our lives have become increasingly over the last couple of uh, decades reactive rather than proactive. I think more and more people have begun to feel less and less in control of the variables in their lives and, and feel they have fewer and fewer levers which they can pull. And I think that brings me back to this word hope. You know, hope is, is one, you're right, it's one of those huge words. It, it's kind of, you know, you asked 100 people for, for their definitions of the word hope and they'd all come up with 100 different ver versions of it, you know, like love or any of these words. I don't think it's, um, I, don't think, I, I don't think it's a soft word, but I do think 
think it's an incredibly difficult world, word to, to pin down. But for me, in, in, in this instance and the way I see it, what, what I think this is about is, is going back to that word control. I think it, it's about, you know, you feel hopeful when you feel you have control, where you know you can plan certain things in certain ways on certain dates. And even if you're going through moments or times of adversity, you know you have control over where that's heading in the future. You know, I, was, I, I wrote a daft article, um, in my, my latest blog, uh, just yesterday, actually. And I was describing one of the ways that I've done that on a really daft and very simple level to, to try and find hope in this this profound time of uncertainty you know I think for a long time during this crisis for example people felt uh, quite I think quite rightly they felt that this was finite and I think they thought well if we can make it through the the spring and summer you know maybe the winter will bring a vaccine maybe the winter will bring um, you know other other treatments and this thing can be brought under control maybe as the numbers come down we'll be able to unlock the world more and we can spring back into into an existence that that's more familiar to us and I think you know what's happened inevitably as many of the experts uh, predicted as we got into September and October and and the start of, of autumn and winter, um, you know, we know things have spiked again. And I think also what's happening is there's a dawning realization that there is no silver bullet. This thing won't just finish on a given day and a given month because of a given vaccine. And actually, we're going to be living with this and the repercussions of this for a very long time. And it hit me very personally, you know, daftly, really, when um, it, it struck us that there was probably no way that we were going to have what we would consider to be a normal Christmas, you know, and, and like for many, many people out there, whether you're religious or not, Christmas is, is one of those times in the year uniquely when the vast majority of the world stops working and spends time with the people they love and care about, you know, and, and eat too much, drink too much, laugh plenty, um, you know, put, put the, the, the year just gone by into, into, um, uh, you know, a chapter of a life's book and start to think about writing the next chapter. We all begin to think about the freshness and newness of a new year, all of those things. And I think, you know, for me, you be, I began to realize that was unlikely to happen. We weren't going to be able to spend Christmas with the friends and family we had um, every year for, for decades. And even with my son away at university in an area of the UK now that's under um, serious lockdown again, uh, whether he'd be, even our son would be able to be with us. And you start to think, well, my God, that was the thing that, that I was going to punctuate as my moment of hope to help claw through the uncertainty and difficulty of, of the next few months. Anyway, um, one of the things that I think my wife and I have learned to do over the, the last uh, few months is, is look for hope in the small things, in the stuff maybe in, in you know, previous months, years gone by, you would have just taken for granted. So one of the daft things that I started to do when we went into lockdown in March was I started to make hummus um, for no other reason than we had 20 tins of chickpeas in our garage and we were thinking what on earth are we going to do with those so I, I learned to make hummus and and um, it became a special event on a Saturday and Sunday that we'd have hummus in the evening before we had dinner you know which is daft but now it's become a real moment of each week which we both looked forward to and, and if we have tough and challenging 
challenging days, um, we both turn around to each other, smile and say, well, it's nearly, it's nearly Hummus Saturday. So chin up, you know? So one of the things that I think people need to do is start to reconfigure what are those big moments that we look forward to. And maybe they don't need to be grandiose and maybe they're already in our lives and maybe they're already happening. And maybe what we need to do is reconfigure, at least in the short term, what we have and what we can still look forward to and what we can still control. And the reason I kind of talk through that rather long-winded answer is because I think there is hope there. There is opportunity to feel control. Um, but what we need to stop doing is looking for the, the big hurrah, the big fanfare, the big fireworks, and really, really appreciate the small things and, and appreciate them uh, with new eyes and in a new way. Interesting, listeners, that you know the few minutes that we've spoken so far, the one word I feel that's been very, very consistent throughout this. Well, there's a, there, it's the same meaning, but there's you know, two or three different words used. Control, certainty. So when we look at this, what's the antidote then for uncertainty? Surely it's certainty. Okay, so that's a nice, almost superficial, some would say flippant answer, oversimplistic. I still personally feel that life is a very, very, very simple game. I really do believe that from everything I've experienced in my uh, almost six decades on this beautiful planet. But absolutely, externally, there is unprecedented. In my life, I mean, maybe the, you know, people that are older and experienced the war would, would give a different account. I'm sure they would, uh, or whatever the challenge has been in their life on, on a world basis. But for me, Richard, this, this whole control thing, this whole uncertainty, um, is the antidote is certainty. Okay, so what is the the humanistic tendency that we, you know, we're conditioned to believe? Look outside for the answer. So maybe with this change, the answer's not outside because there's too much fear and darkness. Maybe if we look a little bit closer to home, then we'll find the answer. The answer's inside because we can't change what's going on outside, but we can change how we look at it. Any thoughts around that, Richard? No, I think you're absolutely right. I, th I think, you know, the, this idea of perspective and perception are incredibly important. Um, and, and, you know, at times like this, both maintaining a perspective and also understand having a perception of the reality compared to the fears and anxieties you may project because um, of what you're seeing and hearing in the news, what you're feeling as a sense that might happen rather than what is happening. I think that idea of maintaining perspective is really important. And again, recently I was uh, reminded of Martin Seligman's um, work around his six questions, you know, really the, the founding father of positive psychology. Um, and, and those six questions, I think, are, are really worth revisiting on a regular basis whenever you feel those moments of anxiety or lack of control. Um, you know, to, to remind people, as I'm sure many of you, many of the listeners will already know, you know, those six questions begin with asking yourself, so actually, what is the worst thing that could happen to me right now? Uh, the second question is, so what could I do to prevent the worst thing from happening right now? The third question is, what is the very best thing that could happen as a result of this right now? And the fourth question then is, so what could I do to try and make the very best thing happen 
in the situation I find myself in right now? And that leads you to the final two questions. And as you go through these questions, I think most people begin to feel a level of control and perspective uh, because the, the fifth question is, okay, so what is the most likely thing to happen out of this situation for me right now? And then the sixth question is, so what can I do to make sure I make the most or control the most likely thing that is to happen in my situation right now. And so I think, you know, it, it's those two things that are, that are so important, perspective and perception. Mm. The, whenever I, when I hear that word perception, it takes me back to um, when I did some studies, some real um, in-depth studies around quality management. It fascinated me. I mean, initially it was around processes and machinery and systems. And I then thought, well, if they can apply all this stuff to, you know, to machinery and pieces of paper, why can't we do it to the thing that matters most, i.e. people? And that was in the sort of mid-80s that sent me off on the Kaizen journey, the continuous improvement. And I studied this at university to a real, well, to doctoral level. But why I mention that is the doctoral level is really interesting because what I come across, Richard, is the fact that there were six eminent quality gurus that have changed changed our world. Three American, three Japanese. But what was really significant is no two of those six could actually agree on what quality was. But one of them that stuck out for me, and this is all subjective, and it brings in your perception word there, and it was from an American called Tom Peters. And Tom Peters said, perception is all there is. And that rings true, Richard, for this theme, what we're talking about, or we could be talking about 100 people in a room, and right, guys, here's a pen. Is this pen a quality pen? And we're going to get 100 different answers, aren't we, unless we operate it as a close question. But this whole kind of richness, which is fantastic, isn't it? It brings in, and, and you know, we've done well, Richard, to keep out, not that it's been deliberate, but no childlike curiosity. I mean, we've got to bring this in, Richard, because I know, no pun intended, this is absolutely your baby. What part does childlike curiosity play in this fear-driven grip, this darkness that we find ourselves in? Well, I mean, there are a number of things, and you're right, Paul. This is really my foundational point and comes really from the beginning of my story as as a primary school teacher many, many years ago. You know, one of the things I've always said is it's always blown my mind how extraordinary kids under five are. You know, when we're talking about change and uncertainty and realizing the anxiety and levels of pressure and stress so many people are under right now. Um, what's really fascinating is when you, you think about it, a child under five exists in a constant bubble of change and uncertainty. Every day is different. Every day is learning something new. No two days are the same. Um, yet you don't see, for example, many 18-month-old children having to go through therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change and uncertainty in their lives. And of course, that's because we're born with an extraordinary level of natural curiosity. Um, 
everything is of interest to us. We'll try everything no matter, you know, because we don't have a, a concept of failure or, or even maybe sometimes danger. Um, but young children, if, you know, are, are interested by everything um, in the world around them. It's so new, so novel, so exciting. And so they adventure into it because at no point at that point in their lives has anyone said to them, you know, to, to make a mistake or get something wrong, to ask a stupid question, to appear naive is bad so don't do it but of course as we get older that's what happens to us we are rewarded when we get stuff right we're chastised when we don't know something or get something wrong if ever we're in a room full of peers particularly professionally and in in our head we're thinking i don't understand what's going on in this meeting very rarely will we say so because we don't want to appear and i put this in inverted commas stupid in front of our peer group and so our lives become progressively dominated by fear, you know, and it's always fascinated me. And, and I, I, don't under, I don't know how you percentage this, but I remember from my very early days of training as a teacher, one of my lectures saying to us that, you know, you learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything you learn in your lifetime before you're five years old. Now, Again, I, I don't know how you percentage it, but the, but the sentiment for me is incredibly powerful and very accurate. You know, when you think about what we learn in those first five years of life, most of us, you know, whether it's to walk and talk, to understand vocal intonation, facial expression, body language, the sensory world around us, we are remarkable. And every single day of our lives, we're waking up to no real sense of routine or normal because every day is firing so many new experiences at us. So I think one of the really interesting things for me is, is absolutely, as you say, the power of trying to claw back some of that childlike curiosity, to not be frightened of the unknown, to not be frightened of not feeling in control of everything, but most importantly, to not be frightened of making a mistake or feeling stupid or inadequate, you know, because... The hard truth of this is, and, and I, I think this is the most important thing I learned from my privileged time working as a teacher, it's to reflect on the fact that none of us, nobody ever learns anything new by getting something right. We only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake, the realization we don't know something or that we can't do something. And what's really interesting about the current crisis we're living through and, and the many crises that many people live through throughout their lives is we spend so much of our energy, mental and physical, trying to scrabble around to try and regain that sense of control, of being correct, um, that we miss the opportunities in those moments to really explore the new experiences, good and bad, um, and the, the, the variables that have suddenly come up in our lives. You know, when people reflect on this year, and let's hope by, you know, by, by next spring when we're a year into this thing, things are beginning to calm down a little bit. When people reflect on the lived experience, and I know, you know that it's a whole different issue talking about those people that have been severely impacted by the, the physical issues around COVID and, and, and the loss and, and what have you that some people may have, a lot of people will have experienced. For many people, what's really important, I think, will be to reflect on the things we've learned, the new things, the, the questions we've asked, the new experiences we've had, whether that's 
working from home and and doing working in a in a t- an entirely different way whether it's you know spending more time outside walking and, and 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 seeing nature or just appreciating those small things like the the bowl of hummus on a saturday night i think what's really really important is we in times of crisis like this, these are absolutely the times we, sh- we should be opening our eyes and opening our ears and sucking in as much as we can and not, be, not being frightened of those new experiences or trying something and failing at it because these are the moments in our lives where our human growth is always going to be the most powerful because when things are stable and we're just going through the motions of doing what we do day in, day out, we tend to just be functional. We tend to be, in the words of, of you know, uh, Frederick Ta- uh, Taylor, one of the great you know, thinkers around industrial design, you know, it, it's about productivity and efficiency and it's in moments of chaos like this where we actually have the opportunity to grow and learn the most. And what I hope is that when we look back on this uh, period in our personal and global history, none of us look back on it with the gr- regrets of thinking, I didn't spend enough time learning from what I was living through. Mm. Yes. Harry Seacombe. I mean, talk about a left-field creative approach to, to challenges. We won't call them problems, which we'll call them challenges. Harry Seacombe, listeners, for those that uh, may be a bit younger um, amidst us, um, he was a, in my opinion, a very, very good singer. But he, he coined, well, he actually made a record called If I Ruled the World. And part of those lyrics was every man would have a new song to sing. And isn't that, doesn't that epitomise, I mean, that song from the 60s, Richard, doesn't that really encompass and epitomise everything we've spoke about so far? And, you know, let's kind of uh, balance the gender there. I'm sure he was, what he really meant to say was, God rest Sir Harry, um, every person would have a new song to sing. But anyway, semantics. But that whole kind of, we've all got a story to tell, haven't we? We've got a song to sing, so let's sing it. You know, what words are we telling ourselves? What, what song are we singing? You know, is it one of doom and gloom or is it one of vibrancy? You know, don't worry, be happy, just to continue the musical theme. So there's this whole kind of creativeness, Richard, isn't it, that we're blessed with, that we kind of lose as well because of the the conditioning, as you say, you know, we, we get past that kind of five, six-year-old stage and, uh, you know, this whole kind of, well, conditioning, it doesn't need any more elaboration than that. But the creativity, and I ask this as a question, is, is creativity the answer to this challenge? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's one of those... Um... It's one of those hackneyed things, but I would suggest that creativity is pretty much the answer to to everything. Um, and I think again, you know, creativity is one of those um, words slightly longer than hope that again have so many generic um, perceptions around it. But you know, if you if you think about creativity, for me, in the most simple terms, creativity and learning are almost the same thing. You know, it's that capacity to find something of interest, the courage to play and experiment with it. And as a result of that, to produce something uh, meaningful and new. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really important to remember in, in these periods of difficulty and darkness, and, and this is an optimistic thing. Again, I've been talking to a lot of people, particularly young people about over the last few months and actually the last few years 
is that we have been living, in my opinion, through a profound period of darkness as a species living on this planet. You know, whether it has been the abject failure to appreciate the destruction of our environment, whether it's the rise of polarization, anger and hatred through populist politics, um, you know, whether it's the fragmentation of um, socio-ethnic groups and the real highlight that that in so few ways have we moved significantly forward in appreciating and integrating our entire species together as one and living in harmony with our planet all of those kind of big things the last you know the our generation have lived through a sliding period of darkness which i think in many ways covid has we've bottomed bottomed out it's almost like this is the this is the final chapter in what has been a very different difficult period in human history but i think the optimistic thing to say is that when you look at history um, what you realize particularly of human evolution is that every period of darkness is followed by a profound explosion in human creativity every period of darkness through history has been followed by a great renaissance a renaissance of science of the arts of culture of human thinking and I think what we have to appreciate is that we're going through the back end, hopefully, of that latest period in human history of great darkness and difficulty. But we will come out of this and we will come out of this stronger and better and there will be a boost of ingenuity and human creativity. You know, I look at our children with a real sense of optimism, um, a real sense that the legacy will be um, exploded into life in that generation because I think they're living through this right now and, and their ability to think creatively, to think different, to build back better. Those are all kind of easy slogans, but I genuinely believe it. And what I hope is that for, for many of us, certainly of our generation, Paul, is that in our dotage in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we'll be able to sit back and watch that next generation take humanity and our planet to new, creative, exciting, dynamic places, and ultimately to make the world a better, happier place. And I truly believe you can only do that when you do have to dig deep, you know, because otherwise complacency seeps in. And I think to an extent, you know, the post-war generation, our generation, um, have allowed that complacency of our planet, of, of human relationships uh, to, to bleed in because life was kind of easy for many, many people. And I think you need these moments of darkness to recalibrate and to reconnect and to refranchise human potential. So, yeah, I truly believe that we're about to enter um, the next great period of light. Before I ask you to share your contact details, Richard, I just want to offer, you've been talking about humus um, and it's made me smile and you've just said something there. Listeners, I want to offer this as a bit of creativity, as a bit of hope and a bit of humour and, uh, and you, usually my humour doesn't go down that well, but I'm going to try anyway. So Richard spoke, you know, semi-consistently about this humus. Well, I would like to offer you a humorous note where when Richard spoke about the next 20 years, you know, and he, and he referred to the dotage, well, I'm kind of, I'll be, I'll, in the next 20 years, I'll be nearly 40. 
that's a scary <laughs> thought. <laughs> anyway, I told you the humus, the humus is not very good, but anyway, we move on. Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Would you uh, would you share with us your contact details, how people can reach out, find out more about who you are, the amazing, the brilliant work, the inspirational work that you do? Yeah, oh, thank you, Paul. That's that's ex- extremely kind. If people having listened to this would like to connect, then they can they can do it through my website, which is simply Richard Gerver, G-E-R-V-E-R dot com, RichardGerver.com, or on Twitter at Richard Gerver, or through reading um, one of my books. If people are interested in education, I've written two, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today and Education and Manifesto for Change. And if you're interested in my more generic thoughts research around um, change and how we can uh, be better at it then there's change learn to love it learn to lead it and also my other book which was an exploration uh, into success and why we overcomplicate so much and that's simply called simple thinking and I'd love to hear and connect with people because for me collaboration as we move forward into that next golden age is going to be the most important thing any of us can commit to. Superb. Thank you once again, Richard. It's been a pleasure as always. Oh, thank you, Paul. It, it, I've loved it. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. So there we have it, listeners. The truly heartfelt and inspirational Mr. Richard Gerber. And all that remains now is to sign off the way that we always do. So let's inject some certainty into this uncertain world by saying, remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing Thanks very much for listening to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. If you found it interesting and helpful, drop a line to Paul via paul at paul-low.com with any thoughts or questions you may have. He'd love to hear from you and he'd be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at www.paul-low.com. Remember, Mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts.